Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Sarah Watts, a Montreal writer and filmmaker whose first feature, co-directed with friend of the show Mark Slutsky, is You Can Live Forever, a drama about a queer teenager who falls in love with another girl in their cloistered Jehovah's Witness community in a small Quebec town in the 1990s. It's really good, it's in theaters across Canada right now, and you should see it. Sarah picked Bound, the directorial debut of the Wachowski siblings, and not so much a debut as a statement of purpose. Set in a world of criminals and jerks, Bound stars Gina Gershon as a morally ambivalent protagonist who gets involved with an alluring dame and her jealous boyfriend, played respectively by Jennifer Tilly and Joe Pantoliano, with violent consequences. It's a standard film noir riff, but by centering the story on a queer protagonist, the Wachowskis change everything about the way we experience it. Because they're geniuses. This is someone else's movie. I chose Bound because Bound was one of the very first movies that I ever felt like I needed to see or I would die. And (laughs) at the time, I was living in Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, which is where I'm from. Mm -hmm. Um, I worked at a little record store slash video store that was like combo because there wasn't a lot of record stores or video stores up there. So it was called Top 40. And I had worked there since I was 13. So I was like squirreling away money for years just like for a trip to Europe or or and university and I had turned 19 and it was in Premier magazine that I read about bound this movie by the Wachowskis starring Jennifer Tilly who was sort of known but like not a huge megastar and the sort of unknown Gina Gershon um and there was a really I quite remember uh, the image which was them sort of holding each other in a suggestive way and thinking, whatever this is, I need to see it. So of course I knew it was going to not going to play in Yellowknife. Mm. So I took some of my savings and I flew to Calgary to stay with a friend to, and I said, I, I'm coming down South to see this movie. I have to see it in the theater. And so that's what I did. I went down for the weekend and saw Bound in the theater and felt like I was seeing the greatest movie I'd ever seen at 19 and a, pretty freshly out, I guess. I'd been out for a couple of years or a year. And yeah, it was very affirming of my lesbianism with that movie. So what was the crowd like? What is a Calgary screening of Bound in 1996 like? I feel like, I wish I could remember, this is 30 years ago, nearly so. And I wish I could remember what theater, I part of me wants to say it was at the Globe, but I cannot exactly remember. I think it was probably a half full crowd, a late show. Um, and I remembered when I got back home and I had, you know, read in, in a gay magazine with, called Out, which had just recently come out that magazine, um, an article about the screening of it in San Francisco, about how the audience was filled with lesbians who were absolutely losing their minds. And when the movie ended, they were like pounding their feet and clapping. And like, it was like the whole place was shaking. They were so excited. And I thought, <laughs> oh, I wish I would have had that experience, but I'll take it. I'll take what I got. Yeah, we uh, we saw it in Toronto. We had it at TIFF. Yeah. And uh, I interviewed Joe Pantoliano for it because he was the only person available to someone uh, with my low status. But he's such a star. He was, yeah, he was a blast. I guess he was sort of up and coming then. Oh, yeah. He was. He had been, I mean, running scared is 10 years before this. Mm-hmm. So he's around. He's a fixture yeah. uh, in, in terms of cult cinema. 
Yeah. Know, like everybody knew who he was. I don't know that okay. he'd started with the Joey Pants thing yet. I know. It came later, I think. Yeah. But he was he was charming and he was absolutely aware of his position within the film. Like yeah. he's basically, I think he said literally, like, I'm the asshole and you want me to die. And we talked about Blood Simple and we talked about the yeah. the the inversion of noir. Mm-hmm. And I I want to credit him with this. I don't know that he said it with me or that I read it elsewhere, but I'm pretty sure he was the one who said it. He said that the best thing about it was reading the script and realizing that neither of the women dies. Yeah. Which was unusual for lesbians to actually survive a whole movie. Well, lesbians plus noir, right? I mean, you just assume there's going to be a betrayal. Yeah, the femme fatale is going to like die herself or kill the other woman, which is shocking that she's with another woman at all. But Mm -hmm. yeah, it really turned everything on its head that movie and in terms of like the the typical caricatures of who's in a film noir yeah i mean you think about any film with a strong female protagonist in that genre Mm -hmm. it's going to be you know double indemnity or Mm -hmm. the last seduction and everybody else is just a mook right like these characters steamroll the world yeah and it wasn't until the second time i watched it that i realized this is actually a lovely uh coming out story for yep. one of them and this 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 tenderness that Gershon shows Tilly. Yeah. I should use character names, it's mean. Violet but and Cork Corky. I know. Corky. And saying Corky just sounds <laughs> so Gershon. silly. I, I know, I I know. It's not my favorite. I usually say Gina Gershon, but Yeah. But she owns that name. That's the other thing, watching it again. It's just Corky. like she yeah. leans into <laughs> Corky in a way it's that like she... not the sexiest name, but she is the sexiest person in that movie, and I think the sexiest person of the nineties, so Oh, she's a walking um, focus pull. It's it's amazing, amazing. how well yeah. they know how to handle her as a as a screen object and not turn her into totally. an object. And what's amazing is that it was originally Jennifer Tilly's role, right? And um, then it, Jennifer Tilly was super excited to play Corky, and then apparently Gina Gershon came in, and everyone was like, "Oh, never mind," <laughs> including Jennifer Tilly recognized that this was the physical embodiment of the Corky character. And I mean, thank God for that because, wow, she really was pretty incredible. They were both amazing. Like really like hamming it up in a way. Yeah. And I think that would be, it is absolutely the only way that could have worked. If if it was Tilly as the, well, not the aggressor, but as the, as the more dominant character of Mm -hmm. the two, I think it would you, it would tip its hand somehow. Like it would feel yeah. either too jokey or too affected. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, and like her voice, everything, it really lends to the femme fatale mm-hmm. um, persona. Even though there's something interesting that they do in the film, which I really thought was really, really smart and really like um, well thought out in terms of how to portray queer characters. Um when she's just around Corky, she dresses down, she's wearing jeans, she's like, her voice changes. Her yeah. voice goes up when she's around the male characters. Like, it's pretty interesting how they do subtle things like that, that I'm not even sure everyone would notice, unless you're really paying attention to, like, how she sort of shifts her her persona mm-hmm. around who she's around. Yeah, I had interviewed her, Tilly, in 92. Two. She was in a movie called Shadow of the Wolf with Blue Diamond Phillips, which... Yeah, I saw that movie in 1992. And oh, you did? did. Okay. I remember everything about it. Oh, of course, because Yellowknife, it would have played, right? Like, it would have <laughs> yeah. actually gotten a release there. Totally. She was aware even then that no one sees her as serious. 
And we had a, we actually had a real conversation about it. And Mm -hmm. it was just like, she's, she was talking about how she was used to being seen as the arm candy, as the girlfriend. And this was a different role for her, which is all true. Mm -hmm. And then it took another four years for this. Mm -hmm. And I looked back and there's, she's working constantly, but nothing that anybody would be remembering. Right. And suddenly she's got this spotlight and she just makes the most of it. And I'm not even sure it was like a big box office smash. I certainly would I certainly would say it's a cult, especially a queer cult classic mm-hmm. now, but I think it made like seven million bucks or something like yeah. that in the box office. It did which fine is not for crazy, an indie. Yeah. But it's like for exactly it cost six million. So yeah. Yeah, but of course the second it hit VHS, I think I still have the laser disc and DVD. I think I might still have the VHS, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I have like my little prize collection of the ones that I carried with me from town to town as I moved through my life. Well, that's it, right? It becomes a talisman, a, a yeah. film that means something. And this was like hugely, we were talking about this before we started recording. Mm-hmm. It was hugely important, but also just before the internet. Yeah, I definitely had a hot meal account, I think, by the, maybe 96. Yeah, but percentage-wise, most people were not part of this, whatever nope. the news group discourse was. I mean, most people still aren't. But it became a thing once it hit video stores and everyone could just oh, yeah. see it. I think if it had been released four or five years later, it would have been a phenomenon. But but who knows? I mean, it's so hard to say because I I can't really like speak to what gay queer audiences if they would have like packed the theaters back then, I mean, there's the one anecdote about the San Francisco screening, but that's the only thing I've ever heard. I don't really know about other people's experience seeing bound in a theater other than you and I just discussed it. But like most people, it's not like such a burned into their brain memory. Like it is for me. Yeah. And it's still, you know, in the post Tarantino era where something is stylish in a quiet way, Mm -hmm. it was competing. It was like swimming upstream against the other ones, but Given how many post Tarantino movies were happening, like Two Days in the Valley is around there somewhere, right? Where where femme fatales are just, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a poster. It's not a movie. Yeah, and Bound is old school in a way that I mean, yes, it's it's a queer take on an old school yeah. narrative, but it is you know, this incredibly smart, uplifting one um, with characters and dialogue and moments that sort of. Take a, take a second and, and welcome the audience in to say, mm-hmm. and it is like, again, that's what Blood Simple does. It's what the Coens do. Exactly. They reward you for being, you know, aware of the canon and smart enough to catch the references, but then they still make sure they tell a story that stands on its own. And mm-hmm. that's where I think the queerness of it ceases to be the draw, right? Like this is based, on the, based on the argument that straight men are much happier going to see movies about women than movies about gay men. Um, you know, it's the broke back yeah. versus bound argument. Right. Uh, which I don't necessarily agree with. I think that they just are more comfortable going to see them in a theater. There's some weird thing about just not wanting to buy a ticket for a quote unquote gay movie. In twenty twenty three, do you think? Well no, that in the nineties if you're yeah. if you're a guy in America especially. Yeah, I wonder if it still sort of applies. I maybe. I hope it's better. I hope so too. I have to. Yeah. I have to hope. I hope that's true. Yeah. But um, bound becomes a bound becomes a thing when it hits video because that goes away. That that inhibition disappears. Yeah, and they certainly didn't shy away from the material on the cover box. Like mm-hmm. it was pretty clearly going to be about these two hot ladies like making out, which of course they do. But there's also this 
awesome like storyline with some great well well done violence that I really like. And I, I rewatched it again last week and I hadn't seen it for a few years, but in my mind, the violence was really intense, but it actually isn't. You they don't they a lot of it is left up to the imagination with sounds mm-hmm. and um you just see a lot of blood spatter. There's some scenes where um a man hits a woman, um, which they don't really shy away from too much. And I feel like I wasn't as bothered by it in the way that they shot it as I as as I thought I would be, but Okay. Yeah. I mean it's Yeah, I, I was looking up some of the older reviews here and um yeah. Janet Maslin was worried about the violence and Ebert said it's shocking violence would offend some audiences. My favorite here is Rita Kempley in the Washington Post who said well nigh unwatchable cruelty for its own sake. Thank you, Wikipedia, which is so not what this movie is. Yeah, I mean, I think that they're probably referring to when Joe Pantoliano, um, his character's name Caesar. Caesar. Um, he he hits Corky. He knocks her out in the back of the head at one point, and then I think they have a little tussle in the white paint, which is such an awesome scene that it's sort of you forget that what what's you, what you're actually watching, which is a man attacking a woman. Um, but he gets his, you know. Yeah. <laughs> And those are the rules within noir, right? Like it yeah, doesn't exactly. feel like it's specifically homophobic violence or specifically, I mean, it is violent. It's definitely woman targeted violence. For but, sure. But it doesn't feel homophobic. Like, you know, yeah. there's something about it that he's, he's, he would, he would be kicking the crap out of a, a dude as well. Like, yeah, it's almost, and I, it's weird to make this argument, but I like, it's very clear to me that Caesar sees Corky as a threat, not as a woman. The, the, the woman aspect is what leads him to underestimate her. Yeah, I mean, there's several scenes leading up to where he figures out it's her, where he's furious when he sees the back of her when he first comes into the apartment because he thinks that she's a guy. Mm-hmm. And then he turns around and he's like, oh, silly me, you're you're a woman. I, I, was, I was freaking out for nothing because he thinks his wife is having an affair. Yeah. Right? And it's like he, that plays with the whole like gender, the gender thing 30 years ago that they were touching on that. Yeah, but mistaken and, mistaken gender identity. Yeah, and mistaken identity in a noir yeah. film is always a cornerstone, right? Like just exactly by the by the virtue of being smart enough to manipulate our expectations of the genre, the Wachowskis yeah. create something even smarter and even sharper. Yep. And then we get the beautiful arc for Tilly for for Violet, who is uh, how does she put it? She's always been. I feel like she does say that she has been with women before. And because she's a sex worker, she's a sex worker who has um, sort of settled into this life with Caesar to for an easy out. And because, you know, he's not ter- too terrible to her. Um, but I mean, and they don't, it gets into the relationship with Corky and Violet almost immediately. Like the elevator scene where they first see each other, I swear it happens in the first five minutes. Like there's no wasting time. They don't waste time showing Violet's life with her husband like they're just like here are the lesbians enjoy immediately (laughs) (laughs) and they get right to it which I kind of love yeah that's a great scene in the elevator too it's pretty classic what's the sneering classic Gina Gershon like it's so seductive and so over the top it's almost funny but it it works on every level it's fantastic yeah it is it's it's the kind of movie that had it fallen between the cracks would have been 
resuscitated, I think, yeah, like re-embraced as a classic. And instead, yeah. because it never really went away, it's like this simmering boil, which every now and then Paramount just reacquired the rights or just acquired the rights because um, it's been out of print for a while. And I'm sure it's going to get a proper, like a 4K release or a celebration. That would be amazing because it it's it deserves it. It's mm-hmm. such a slick beautifully shot film with so many cool like tricks with color and lighting. I mean, the, 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 the way that, you know, the cinematographer did a beautiful job because he starts to frame and light Caesar in the in most interesting way throughout the movie. How he's really well in and then he becomes, as he loses his mind and sort of goes off the, off the deep end, the lighting on him becomes really fractured and really cool. And I really picked that up the last time I watched it last week about how interesting the, uh, they photographed it. Yeah. I mean, it's Bill Pope. The guy's a master. Yeah. He's, he's, he was their second choice, but he was the only one who said he could afford to do it for the budget, which is crazy. And yet he gets the matrix out of it. Right? And everything works out for everybody. <laughs> he does. And he did, uh, like Scott Pilgrim and a few other interesting mm-hmm. ones, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. In fact, I'm sure that one, um, it's the, uh, yeah, it's, it's also, Revolutionary. I didn't realize this at the time, but Susie Bright was their basically their intimacy coordinator. Their, Probably uh, one of the first examples of an intimacy coordinator, which is well, so they, telling to who these people were. Like the fact that they they knew that they probably shouldn't write a lesbian sex scene without a lesbian speaking into what that might look like, and then bringing in a pretty well known sexpert. That was the, what the name she went by mm-hmm. um, to coordinate and consult. It's so ahead of the time. It's insane. 30 years ago, basically, they had an intimacy coordinator to coordinate lesbian sex scenes. And there wasn't even a name for it. Nope. It was called choreography. Exactly. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And then you didn't hear about it again for decades. Yeah. It's so strangely their thing, right? Like, as, as filmmakers... The Wachowskis, Wachowskis? I never know how to pronounce them. I, I hear both. Wachowskis yeah. sounds right to me. I think so. I usually say it. Maybe I I'm wrong. I'll look it up. Well, however I say it in the intro is how I heard one of them say it on a podcast, I promise, oh, okay. for the future. Oh. Hey, it's Norm, interrupting my own show to bring you up to speed on Shiny Things my twice-weekly newsletter about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming project. Last week, I wrote about the home releases of The Whale and Babylon and Criterion's new Blu-ray of David Lynch's Inland Empire. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the Semcast Twitter account. Look, I have to write about movies. I have to. Come check it out. They are so good at building worlds mm-hmm. that are authentic, right? Yeah. Even when they're, even when they're ridiculous, like something like Speed Racer or, or Jupiter Ascending, where we have funny animal people or, you know, people are sort of living in a Skittles Dayglow universe, the textures and, and the, the materials all mm-hmm. feel convincing and Bound is that version of having no money and building a real world. It's really quite stunning as a first feature like when you watch it it's hard to believe that it was their calling card because really you know and complicated shots like all the bird's eye shots going through walls like really smart really smart stuff that um i don't really i can't really think of them using 
shots like that necessarily again, but it was such a low budget that they shot the whole thing in like two rooms, maybe really limited locations, which was smart for budget purposes, but yeah, it's necessity being the mother of invention and all and, and the claustrophobic feeling that people are just trapped yeah. with each other, whether they want to be or not. And yeah. it all works. It all, everything is a strength. Every yeah. aspect of the film serves the story. Yeah. Including the, including the very hot sex stuff, which is, you know, the way you sell it, but it's not what's, it's the motivator. It's not the plot. Absolutely. And, you know, I was, when I was watching it again the other day, what I kept thinking about was how much it feels like the female gaze, which it was. Mm -hmm. And there are like, it's, it really is because there are all these shots in the first 10, 15 minutes of the movie where it's like just super sexy, slow motion set to like rock music of Gina Gershon painting a ceiling, um, cleaning out a, a drain in a bathtub. All these things that I don't think um, a man would necessarily think were sexy shots, but like for a 19-year-old lesbian watching Gina Gershon's hand in slow motion, like her oil slicked hand, like drip with water as she unscrews the pipe under a sink in slow motion, like the boldness <laughs> of that is so insane. But it works, and it was like, this is well, this is the hottest thing I've ever seen. I can watch Gina Gershon in a white tank top doing home repair all day. I mean, I would watch that movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did watch that movie. I've watched that movie a hundred <laughs> times. <laughs> so did it become that sort of, I mean, obviously it's a touchstone for you, but did you mm -hmm. sort of end up building, like what happened when you went home? Did you carry the story of this film with you? Were you telling people, were you? Oh, of course. Like, and I don't know if you remember how long it took for things to come out on video after they were released in the theater. It was, oh, yeah, this was like out years. Sometimes. More than a year and after the festival played. Exactly. Which now it's like two weeks later, it's on VOD. But back yeah. then you really had to put in your, put in your time waiting for these things to come out. So of course, because I worked in a video store, I probably immediately took a copy home and never brought it back. Um, or maybe Columbia House. Maybe I Columbia House did. I don't remember. That was a thing. Yeah. I had definitely had the poster. And yeah, I, I probably seen the movie 50, 60 times throughout my life because I would put it on for every new girlfriend that I had that I would insist on watching it. And yeah. It, it really is like part of the Sarah canon of films that are, are vital watches for sure. How did they respond? I mean, did you notice over the years, were people familiar with it or was it just always a new thing? Um, I think for many, it was a new thing. Funny. I was recently talked to, talking to um, my first girlfriend who I was still friends with. And she was like, she was always annoyed with my obsession with Gina Gershon. And so I said, well, you're never going to believe that. I'm going to be doing a podcast about Bound. And she's like, <laughs> of course, you're doing it about Bound. Oh, God. <laughs> so shout out to her. I made her watch it many, many times. <laughs> uh, I think, I'm trying to remember. I think the first time I saw her in anything would have been Red Heat. The, I think I probably also saw her in something like that. But the first time she, of course, really owned the screen and was given a character to really like work with is it's quirky. Oh, not showgirls. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love Crystal Connors, Crystal Lou Connors, yeah. but, <laughs> but it's camp, right? Like it's not a it's, role role. It's she, I mean, she's beautiful in that, but 
And that's another movie I've seen many, many, many times. But obviously the character in Bound speaks to every young, fresh lesbian in the universe in a big, bold way. But yeah, I love Crystal Lou Connors from Showgirls, of course, but she's no quirky. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's one of those roles, too, where uh, Showgirls versus Bound, I mean, where Gershon needs to do something that shows range after something mm-hmm. like Showgirls, where mm-hmm. she's playful, she's snappish, she's exactly what the movie needs. Yeah. But that is not a film that anyone watches for depth, I guess. And Showgirls? Showgirls is, it's all surface. Like, isn't it? It's always felt I that mean, way to me. It's funny. I had a very long conversation with Adam Maiman once about Showgirls. Oh, Adam literally <laughs> wrote the book on it, of course. <laughs> yeah. I think he, he credited me in the back of the book because of our very long conversation about it, because of my um, the my gay approach to Showgirls, how I think about it. Um, and Jeannie Gershon, I think, probably came up because I, she she it's such a, like, it's such a, it's such a ridiculous character, and, but it's so fun to watch. And she's such a bitch. And like, I think she really um, is a really bright spot in that film, which, you know, she's a, cause she's a good actor, I think. Oh yeah, she is. She absolutely yeah. is. And, and that's the thing, right? Like looking the way she does, she gets cast as girlfriends and malls. Uh, I think she's a little more unusual looking. Like she has that weird mouth that I love and she's got kind of cat-like, but like she looks tough. Like she yeah. looks like she could rip your head off, which I think is what's so hot about her. But what really like sets her apart from the classic, like she can never play like a girl next door or somebody's mom. I don't think mm. she's, God, just, no. she's, I don't know if she could, she's just, I wouldn't want her to about her. I wouldn't want her to either. Yeah. But she's always, that's what I mean about the girlfriend thing. She's always too strong. Yeah. She comes in and she takes over like red heat. I remember thinking, who is that? And why am I not watching the movie about her? Yeah. <laughs> And it's because she has this incredible presence. And yeah, part of it is the look. She's always like, she's also got this kind of half sneer as a resting face where she you can't just help it. It's yeah. the way her mouth is built. It's really unusual. And, amazing. and you just instantly like, what is she mad at? What's going on? What do I, what don't, what don't <laughs> I know? Let in her this be scene? Mad at me. I, she's so, <laughs> yeah, she's fantastic. I'm a she, big fan. Yeah. She has a little secret, but then <laughs> this comes out and it's like, she is the lead. Like yeah. un- unquestionably, it is yeah. a love story, but Corky is the hero. Yeah. And the and the focus. And so yeah, I remember watching it the first time through and, th- and like not ever wondering if Corky was gonna kill Violet, but does Violet have a plan? Which actually makes her because because Gershon is so dynamic, it actually makes Tilly more interesting as Violet in her stillness. So right, when you because, were first watching it, did you think one of them was going to betray the other? I just assumed that that's where we were. Based like, on the film noir rules. Exactly, yeah. Right. And, and but the I two, like that they turned that up around because it's two women. Exactly. And yeah. having them not betray one another and actually be together and stay together is Truly the so twist. far ahead of its time, and yeah. which is an awful thing to have to say about something that's like from when I was nearly an adult to now, but... <laughs> it's, I think that's the genre more than anything else. It's just yeah. there are not a lot of noirs with happy endings. Um, it's practically a feature of yeah. the of the form, and that's why they can get away. That's why the, the Wachowskis can upend it by just telling a straight story with a happy ending yeah. and setting it in this world. Because yeah. we just that is the one thing you don't see coming. And you know, like of course, when they first brought it to the table, there were people that were like, "Well." We won't make it unless you turn Corky into a man. Yeah. <laughs> Just like you can't can you imagine that movie, how like forgettable it would be. 
Yeah, Otherwise, I've seen 25 of those. Exactly. But it's funny that the, that they, I'm glad they stood their ground because, I mean, it's it's one of the best lesbian films ever made, I think. Yeah. And we can talk about the the place in the Wachowski's filmography that it occupies because three years later they make The Matrix and everything changes. Yeah. And then they continue to do their thing and then they come out as trans. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, that is something that based on how macho the first Matrix is and how much it borrows from straight up action movies and and here too, like it's it's not an inversion of hard-boiled crime fiction. It's simply hard-boiled crime fiction with two women in the lead. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like in retrospect, what you say about the female gaze is like it's dead on, right? This is just a communication from personalities Absolutely. that haven't formed yet. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think there's a lot more discussion about the trans, under, the underlying trans um, messaging in the Matrix movies. Oh, absolutely. Whereas I think in Bound, even though there's a, there's a lot of subtext to the, even the title, but um, as I said, it really just feels like the female gaze perfectly captured, which wasn't even a concept in the 90s when we were watching these films. I don't think that term even existed yet, but it really did. I remember feeling like these slow shots of home repair do not feel like what a man would even think of as sexy. Like it really does feel like women have written and directed this as they did. So yeah. And even now watching it back, that's what it feels like. It really does. It really honors the female gaze. Um, and, and they wrote fantastic female characters. It's super unusual. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have huge problems with the Matrix Resurrections on a whole bunch of levels, but the idea that it's there to give Trinity the arc that she was denied in the first three films. Oh, interesting. And showcase one time. Yeah. I just saw the one time in the theater and then I thought, okay, I I (laughs) saw it. I don't know if I'll ever watch it again. I can't even really remember the Trinity arc, to be honest with you. She flies. She gets to fly. <laughs> that's the only thing that matters. The arc of flying. That's what. That's what she got. Okay. Yeah, I mean, but but it also gives Carrie Ann Moss the chance to have like quiet emotional scenes with Reeves that she was never able to have in the first three movies because they were always you right. know, talking about the end of the world. And here, there's just this right maybe the scene in the cafe. Again. The, the, maybe I should stuff, watch it again. Yeah, there's stuff in it that holds up weirdly okay. enough, in spite of being a Matrix movie. It's yeah. It's the. Are you not a fan of the first one? Either? I love the first three. Yeah. I think that the like the whole trilogy is really solid, and yeah. especially in the rearview mirror, a really fascinating allegory for truly for wrestling with identity and knowing who you are, even though no one will allow you to be that person, mm-hmm. and all mm-hmm. of that playing into their real life story is absolutely fascinating. And again, the idea that it took another decade after they made this incredibly successful film series to be confident enough to be their true selves yeah. is just, just remarkable. remarkable right. Yeah. And, and I wish they talked about it more because there's obviously I, as, as like, I'm a straight man, I have no claim to their story or anything like that, but I know there are people who are struggling with the things that they struggled with, who would benefit mm-hmm. from knowing the nuts and bolts yeah, and, and the evolution of, of how like, it works. Pretty famously private, right? Yeah, they just, and, and I get it, right? Because obviously if like they came a, up the way totally they did, they're going to be yeah. incredibly protective of each other and, and of their own lives. But yeah, I 
I really, I hope that someone somewhere down the line, one of the two or both of them makes an autobiographical picture and just deals with this stuff head on because I think they're like, they're amazing visionary artists and I would love oh, to see 100%. how they and, handle and, that. And at least they have that, at least their art and their films will be studied for decades to come and analyzed now with a whole new, um, by a whole new angle, which is fantastic. Honestly, pe people might have problems with Bound if they watched now with, you know, the, the lesbian characters are real caricatures. They are like pretty obvious in the Butch and Femme, mm -hmm. which I don't know would hold up now. Certainly wouldn't be made now. Um, the violence against women. I, I, I think it might bother a lot of uh, of the generation now, but oh, for me, I'm, I'm a little bit steeled to it because I'm so obsessed with it. And like, it meant so much more to me than I'm watching a man at one point in the movie, punch a woman. For me, it was like, this is pure lesbian power and I'm loving every second. Yeah. Well, and depiction is not endorsement, right? Which is exactly. something that seems to be lost on the current generation. And it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like a, like, like a glorification of violence against women, the film, not for one second. No, they're just giving everybody reasons to root for our heroes effectively. 100%. And, and exactly. you know, like it's maybe a, not even a metaphorical, but an actual translation of the, the way that Corky and Violet are objectified and pushed down constantly by everybody around them. Once mm -hmm. it becomes violent, it's the violence that was always there, mm -hmm. right? Like Caesar is just a character who gets to express it violently without consequence until there are consequences. And the male characters are all just cartoonish buffoons, which mm -hmm. is wonderful to see. Like they all, there's the scene where he's drying off all the money, wearing a, just an apron and he just <laughs> looks so ridiculous. And they're just there to be laughed at. Christopher Maloney actually had, I was going to say who, a young, who, stupid Christopher Maloney. Who really was, has a lot of fun and like choose that role right up. But they're just idiots. And they all just like, they all get played so perfectly. It's really wonderful. Yeah. yeah. It's a great way to go out too in a movie. Just, yeah. you know, go out for the evening, watch something. Yeah. They're a bunch of dumb guys. Just get what's coming to them. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Not a lot of movies nail that so much anymore, but this one really <laughs> did a long time ago. Yeah. So this is the part of the podcast where I try to figure out a link between the film you've chosen and the film you've made. And I'm not seeing a lot other than that the they're both take place in the 90s. It's pretty obvious. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> um, in terms of inspiration, I mean, it's pretty, not really much inspiration there. It's not, You Can Live Forever is not noir. Um, exactly. There's not a lot of resonance. There is a lot of um, suggested, or there's a lot of implied closeting in Bound, yes. which goes out the window for yes. us in the audience in the first exactly. five minutes. And your film is about people figuring out who they can be themselves with, which I think is similar. But that's, yeah, it's that's not the about, resonance. It's not about necessarily figuring out, it's not like um, they're struggling to understand their own gayness. That's never really touched on because mm -hmm. it's not, it wasn't really the story that we wanted to tell. But it is, yeah, it's about maneuvering this world through this world that does not accept. And one character is way more savvy about it than the other, um, which is sort of also like Bound, actually. You know, Violet is a little more careless than Corky, who's gotten out of prison and is like a little more cautious about being seen. Mm. Again, that's a stretch to try to compare the two <laughs> movies. <laughs> Um, I, and I, when I first, uh, when we first cast Onwen and June in You Can Live Forever, I sent them a list of, of movies to watch. 
Um, Bound was not on that list, I'm ashamed to say. But I don't think I've since watched it because I've certainly talked about it enough. Would you get them to watch it now? I think that, I mean, they've now starred in a, in a, in a movie that's part of the lesbian canon. I think that they should watch the, 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 the original lesbian canon films for sure. Yeah. What is the lesbian? I mean, I'm trying to think about the, the modern canon in terms of films that were produced in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and like what there is out there. There's Desert Hearts and Bound. Are the two. Desert Hearts a great one. And, and another one with Nobody Dies, mm-hmm. which, I mean, that, that really was like the bar, the bar was on the floor for, in terms of how can you make a lesbian movie that lesbians are going to like? Well, don't murder them. <laughs> it started that point. You Just think it would live. be, you think it would be obvious. You think, but TV hasn't figured that out yet. They can't, well, now they can't, they, they cancel them before the lesbians can die. So it's not really an issue anymore. Um, yeah, like um, I'm now. I'm thinking of the '90s. I'm thinking of like the incredibly true adventure, Adventures of Two Girls in Love, which right, is yeah. a really wonderful little indie film. Yeah, Go Fish obviously was another one right around that time. Yep, another one I traveled to see was Go Fish. Oh yeah, Trosh. yep. Um, and I'm not, and that's another one I'm not sure would hold up. You know, I I actually have to watch it again because it's probably been been 20 years since I've seen it. Um. But and it was very arty, like the black and white and like yeah. the, the crazy camera moves. I, I'm I'm curious about it. Yeah, I think if that. anything, it would hold up as a time capsule, right? Like this is the way uh, queer 100%. women saw themselves. Yeah, but it's also like the main character. She doesn't. She's not into butch women, and she like has a lot of negative things to say. That's right. Yeah, it's Gwyneth Turner plays mm. her. Um, yeah, I really wonder how that would hold up because it, the the early L word episodes from the original series, certainly there's, they're problematic to a new generation of queer people who have a different way of speaking about themselves. Um, but, and I wonder, and I think kind of bound skips over that because they didn't, there's the one scene where Quirky goes to the lesbian bar and like has a little, little bit of like a peacocking with another lesbian over a woman who was actually Susie Bright in a, mm-hmm. in a little cameo. Yeah. And it sort of made me giggle a little bit watching it because it's so like, it's so nineties lesbian that it was just kind of a, exactly as you said, it was a time capsule of the culture back then, which I was just coming into as a 19 year old, the, the whole thing, their tattoos, the, the works, like it really is a perfect little time capsule of nineties lesbian culture. for sure. With a happy ending. With a happy ending, rare and beautiful. My thanks to Sarah Watts whose first feature, You Can Live Forever, is in theaters across Canada right now. Thanks also to Mark Slutsky. He knows what he did. Sarah's not on Twitter, but you can follow her movie at YCLF underscore film, and you can find Bound on Blu-ray from Olive Films, at least for now, and streaming on Hollywood Suite in Canada and Paramount Plus in the U.S., and for rental or sale on various VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 44 of which, including Mark Slutsky on John Frankenheimer's Ronin, aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. 
and check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out, get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week.